1982 was one of the finest on record in terms of the number of great science fiction and genre films released. 1984 surely wasn't far behind. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Terminator, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, Nightmare on Elm Street, Starman and Dune were some of the more notable films released this year. An eclectic and fascinating list. However, one film also released in 1984, a groundbreaking movie in its own right, seems to get forgotten when listing the great movies of the year. It always seems to come second to 1982's Tron and Star Trek II when talking about computer effects. It was outperformed at the box office by Purple Rain and the Karate Kid, and it didn't spawn a range of toys, sadly, despite featuring the requisite hardware to do so. It is, of course, The Last Starfighter. Now, at this point, I did introduce my guest on this particular show. I likened it to when Fred Astaire appeared on Battlestar Galactica, or Frank Sinatra appeared on Magnum P.I., or Richard Burton on The Fall Guy. I was joined by luminary of the podcasting world, good friend and all-round decent bloke, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. For some reason, however, the first four minutes of this particular recording just didn't want to record. It's just one of those things that happens occasionally in podcasting. We basically chatted for a few minutes about how we first heard of the film. We both fondly remembered the full-page adverts in Marvel Comics of the time. Scott remembered seeing it on HBO. I remembered first reading the comic book adaptation that was serialised in the Marvel UK reprints. Both of us didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it on video. We both marvelled about how the opening credits look slightly truncated when seen in pan and scan, and we just had a, a brief chit-chat, sadly, all of which has been lost into the ether. Which is a shame. But, you know, like I say, one of those things. So anyway, here's the opening theme from The Last Starfighter to remind you just how good it was, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, and then we'll go straight into the recording with me picking up the synopsis of the movie.
Uh, well, before we get into the film properly, for those that haven't seen it, the plot centers around Alex Rogan, played by Lance Guest, a trailer park kid with big dreams, mocked by his peers and rejected by the college he hopes to attend. Alex loses himself in the video game Starfighter. When he smashes the heart High score he is approached by a smooth talking con man, Centauri, played by the music man Robert Preston, who whisks him away to far off galaxy. The video game was just a test, and Alex is qualified to join the Star League against the evil Zur and the Kodan Armada. Alex doesn't want the honor, but when the rest of the Starfighters are wiped out and Earth is also threatened, Alex joins with his co pilot Grig, Dan O'Herley, to save the universe. That's very, you know. It's a very limited synopsis of the film. But one of the things that, that was struck when I was watching it last night for sitting down to do this is the performances are really, really good in this. And other than Robert Preston and Dan O'Herley, and you don't even recognise Dan O'Herley because he's under a ton of latex right. as a, a lizard-like V-type lizard, Lance Guest and Catherine Murray Stewart are really good in this film. Yeah, they are. And I don't remember seeing them in anything else. I can remember Catherine Mary Stewart in Knights of the Comet. She, it's funny because I looked her up to see, I, I looked several of these uh, actors and actresses up to see what else they had been in. And she was the first one I looked up because I always had, <clears throat> pardon me, I always had the biggest crush on her uh, because of this movie. I, she's just a doll in that very 80s way. So I looked yeah, up to see what else she had been in. And the only other thing besides Night of the Comet that uh, I remembered having seen was she was the girlfriend in Weekend at Bernie's as well, which I'm I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I've actually seen Weekend at Bernie's, but I have. So. <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, her, her credits, nothing really jumps out. It, it looks like it's mostly B-movie fair, unfortunately. Um yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why she didn't go on to Bigger and Better, because she was very attractive. And she's really good in the film. I remember an episode of Knight Rider. Right. <laughs> That's as far as that goes. But the last place I remember seeing Lance Guest was in The X-Files. So oh, really? I don't know what he's gone on to do. Well, for the longest time, I had... I, I used to get him and... Oh, I can't believe I'm going to blank on the kid's name. But the kid that plays young Clark Kent in Superman the movie, I used to get the two of them confused all the time because they, they look and sound very much alike. Jeff East. Jeff East, thank you. That's his name. Yeah, I always got those two confused because when I pulled up Lance Guest, I was surprised not to find the day after in his credits. And, of course, that's Jeff East. So I always got the two of them uh, mixed up in my mind. But uh, if it wasn't for the hair, I, I think that Lance Guest could have easily played uh, a young Clark Kent or, or even Superman, you know, later in, in, in life. Because he just he, he kind of had that all-American boy look about him, you know? Yeah, he's got that wholesome appeal, right. hasn't he? Uh, the reason it's in a trailer park is apparently the it, the original script was in the suburbs and they thought that was too Spielbergian. Hmm. So I they think, swapped it to a trailer park. I think the trailer park thing really works in this mm. very well. Yeah, I think it, it adds something to it that you've not seen before. Because obviously, not growing up in America, I didn't know what a trailer park was. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> right. So uh, this actually makes it look like quite an appealing place. 
Well, because they, they've they, got a lovely view. These days, uh, I, I don't know. I can't remember about the '80s. And I mean, this this trailer park seems like it's populated by by pretty nice people these days. And maybe this comes from living 20 years in in Georgia. But these days, trailer park has a very uh, you know a, a very redneck stigma <laughs> to it. You know, it's they're not they're not necessarily good or appealing places. So this one's kind of an idealized version of the trailer park. Right. The video game that he plays as well, Starfighter, was that ever a game? Because it looks brilliant in the film. Well, the, the thing that's funny about that is that uh, I, I was talking to somebody at work the other day, and uh, I was telling them about this movie, because I had just rewatched it, and it was just on my mind, and somehow or other the subject came up, and we were talking about it, and I was talking about uh, you know describing the movie, and they said... Oh, I remember that game, and I just kind of, you know, in, in in my mind, I'm just thinking, oh, that's nice. They have no idea what I'm talking about because it was never a game. But apparently, at least according to uh, the the wiki article that I was looking at about this, that there actually was a Last Starfighter game. But I don't remember there being one. It says here, it says a real The Last Starfighter arcade game by Atari. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I miss. I misread it. It says is promised in the end credits, but was never released. Okay, so I'm sorry. I misread it. So there was, according to this, there never was one. Um, but there, it does say that there were home versions. It says there was a home version for the Atari 2600 and the 5200. I don't remember that at all. Um, no, I I don't remember no, there being again, a game I'm, for okay, this I'm, at all. I'm not reading far enough. That's my problem here. <laughs> it says. Uh, uh, again, it says were developed but never commercially released under the last Starfighter name. The home computer version was eventually renamed and released as Star Raiders 2. Okay, that game I remember. And yeah, that was very much like uh, Last Starfighter. It says a prototype exists for the 2600, uh, which was in actuality a game already developed by Atari under the name Universe. This game was eventually released as Solaris. In 1990, a NES game titled The Last Starfighter was released, but uh, it was actually a conversion of Iridium for Commodore 64. So it sounds here like uh, like it wasn't ever. It says a, free, uh, a freeware playable version of the game uh, based on what is seen in the film was released for PC in 2007. A faithful reproduction of the arcade game from the film. That would be worth tracking down. Because here's the <clears throat> thing that's amazing about the film and that anybody watching it today would would have to be informed of before watching the scene because if you watch it today you just get sucked into the portions where Alex is playing the game and he's he's winning at the game and everything and it's totally believable what you have to remember is that that's all special effects video games didn't look like that in 1984 they you know they were very simplistic in 1984. So everything... Yeah, it was the Star Wars wireframe attack on the Death Star was the popular one when I was that age. Right. That, I think that was about as sophisticated as it got. So what yeah. you're seeing on the screen that Alex is playing, that's all done with the supercomputers that, that made the film. So it's all special effects. He's probably not really looking at or playing anything in actuality. It's all dubbed in, you know, after and post production. So that that's really that's the, uh, one of those nice little magic tricks that they pull off. That now that we're you know thirty years past when this movie came out, if you watch it now, you don't even catch that because video game technology has gone so far beyond 
what he's playing there that you just you completely buy it. You have to remember that, oh, no, wait, they didn't look like that back then. I think that's pretty neat, actually. And it does look like something that we would have played back Mm -hmm. in the 1980s in our head. Mm-hmm. It does look like it. So it is really well done. What's really interesting about the game as well is it completely sets up the ending of the film. This mm-hmm. is The game is exactly what he has to do yep. to destroy the Armada at the end, which I thought was beautifully set up for what they have to do later. It is all there right at the very beginning. One of the things that always uh, <laughs> always amused me in the movie is that the voice of the the video game that welcomes you and instructs you on what to do and everything is Centauri. And Alex mm. never puts that together. He never recognizes that, which always amused me because when Centauri actually shows up to basically to recruit Alex and take him off to the Star League and everything, the first time he talked, I thought, you know, Alex should recognize this guy's voice immediately because he's been playing the hell out of this game, but he never puts it together, which is actually kind of funny. Yeah, especially seeing as when he first meets him and he's in his, his funny little space car, he doesn't actually see his face. He does only hear the voice. Right. So we as the audience recognize the voice straight away. Or if you were paying attention, you recognize the voice straight away. So it does seem a bit odd that Alex doesn't go, I know that from somewhere, and he never mentions it. But... I love the bit in the space car. I think Lance Guest does a really good job of playing that this guy has just took him in a car and now they're traveling through outer space. Mm-hmm. And I love the space car, even though it's completely impractical. And when they take off and they're flying around um, Jupiter's rings, some of that effects work is still pretty impressive. I, I really do think it is, yeah. I, I like it because they, uh, again, they made a real effort to make things not just move in straight lines to curve and and drift and things so yeah while it does you know i mean it's obviously early computer effects so you know it's easy to look at it today and, and go oh you know that's not very sophisticated but at the time it was quite sophisticated and it and it really worked well and there is a lot of it that i i do think really still holds up very well they uh they really did a lot of great work with shadowing and shading on the the 3D models, you know, on the computer models. Mm. That really helps sell a lot of the effect. So, you know, not it's not all just bright and shiny objects. They they have a, a, a certain texture to them. I mean, they're not as sophisticated as what we would eventually get to a point that you can't tell. I mean, you can obviously tell what is computer generated in the film versus what is real world. I, I don't off the top of my head, I, I can't think of a single effect shot where the the computer stuff doesn't look computer. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But at the same rate, it's you can tell that a lot of time and effort went into it. I mean, they really did an amazing job for the for the level of technology that movies were at with computers at this time. I, I, and I think that's what helps it hold up as well as it really does. Yeah, so I think the only real limitations with it that you spot watching it now is it's like the original Star Trek. There is never a scene where the actors interact with the computers, the computer-generated effects, whereas nowadays we're used to all of that because of Jurassic Park and them interacting with the dinosaurs. Yeah. There's none of that in this. The special effects are completely separate shots from the actors. That's true. Yeah, the few times where they do blend the computer and uh, real-world elements. And, I mean, there's not really interaction so much as 
there are a couple of shots where they put the computer CGI'd um, starfighter into shots with people, you know, at the end of the film, and they all look like what they are. They all look like composite shots because there's the one where you have the starfighter on the platform and Grieg and Alex are, are welcomed by General Dodonna. <laughs> Essentially, I always think of that guy as General <laughs> Dodonna. They're welcomed by General Dodonna, and he says, oh, they love you, Alex, and then you see all the people cheering and everything. It's a great shot in that 80s composite special effects way, but today it's terribly dated, unfortunately, because but that's just how they did effects back then. So guys like you and I, I think, are very forgiving of shots like that. You know, unfortunately, young people that didn't grow up through this period, they see that stuff today. And to them, it's just, oh, it's one of dad's cheesy old movies, you know. But I, you know, I would mm. love to – I started watching this uh, the other day, and, uh, and Logan was in the room. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't get to watch the entire movie with me. But he got sucked right in. I mean, we watched it up to the part where – where Centauri took Alex to Rylos and he was digging it. I mean, he was buying it right along till then. So, I mean, it still does have that appeal. And that's the big thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is just, you know, whether you buy the effects, whether you don't buy the effects, whether you think it looks cheesy or whatever, it's the appeal is still there. The movie still works on a quintessential hero's journey level. And, I was very amused to find something, uh, again, when I was just doing some basic lookup of, of information about the movie. Um, Chris Honeywell and I, uh, at the wrap-up of last year on, on Two True Freaks, we did a, a 1984 in movies retrospective. And this one, of course, came up in the conversation, um, you know, just because it came out in 84. We talked briefly about it. And basically, I threw out there that there were a lot, and I mean a lot of Star Wars ripoffs in the late 70s all through the 80s. I think this is the best one that there ever was. Because it's, while it does steal an awful lot of ideas from Star Wars, or at least parallel, I don't know if it's fair to call it a ripoff, because I don't think that maybe they were intentionally trying to rip it off, but I mean, obviously it hits a lot of the same beats. So, you know, I, I kind of, that was kind of my praise for it. I actually mean that in a very sincere way that, you know, while it is essentially just another star Wars, it does some unique things and it does work on that level. I found that, uh, it's very funny that, uh, Gene Siskel from, uh, Siskel and Ebert said essentially the same thing. He uh, says here, uh, Gene Siskel included the film on his list of guilty pleasures, describing it as a Star Wars ripoff, but the best one. And I thought, well, that's pretty awesome that, you know, this this famous film reviewer had the exact same opinion of the movie, because that that's how I see it. That's how it works for me. But it does do a couple of unique things um, that Star Wars didn't necessarily do, because... You know, so many of the Star Wars ripoff films hit exactly the same beats. You know, you've got the young Luke Skywalker kid. You've got the wizened, you know, old mentor. You've got, you know, the, you know, the weird aliens and whatever. And this didn't exactly do that because rather than Alex, who is very Luke Skywalker in this movie, rather than Alex getting the wizened, you know, Ben Kenobi or Gandalf figure, he gets Centauri. And that, that creates an entirely different dynamic with this, because Centauri is a huckster. 
And I thought that's a really unique take with this because he's a con man, he's a huckster, but he also does still manage to deliver a couple nuggets of wisdom because one of my favorite uh, lines of you know these 80s sci-fi movies is in this movie, and it's when uh, he takes Alex back to Earth. Because Alex turns down the opportunity to be a starfighter. He's just not interested. So Centauri takes him back and he's dropping him off. And, you know, he tries one more time to sell Alex on this idea of, you know, this is your destiny. This is what you should be doing. And Alex, he's overwhelmed by it. And he just says, look, I'm just a kid from a trailer park. And I love this moment because Centauri cuts him off right in the middle of his statement and he says, if that's what you think, then that's all you'll ever be. And I love that. I mean, that is a powerful message that, you know, I, and they're not preachy about it at all. I mean, it's it's easy to just kind of miss that line, but it is a message. And it's, I think it's a very powerful one that kind of, that kind of, to me, that little scene kind of sums up the whole movie in a lot of ways. No, yeah, it's because it's the pivotal moment in the film. Mm-hmm. where he's come back he doesn't want the honor of being a starfighter seeing everybody get massacred or he's, he's not witnessed everyone get massacred but seeing the attack with the big um 3d holographic head kind of made alex go uh yeah i'd rather just go home if that's all the same to you right and the, yeah the centauri scene where he says no you wanted the opportunity to leave essentially and i'm giving you the opportunity and you're turning your back on it Right. It is a lovely scene. Rob Preston is brilliant in the film. Yeah, he is. He's really absolutely is. fantastic as Centauri. Because, yeah, like you say, he's not the wizened Gandalf dispensing pearls of wisdom. He's a con man who's brought Alex here for the money. Yep. And there is just something wonderful about that. But he ends up being quite a decent mentor figure. The only problem I had with it, I kind of wished he'd let him stay dead. See, it's funny because on the rewatch, when he dies, I was like, oh, my God, I don't remember that that he died. And then I had the same reaction at the end when he comes walking out. I'm like, oh, you know, because, I mean, I, I wish it had been one way or the other. Either don't have the death scene and just, you know, he, he goes off to do something else, you know, kind of Han Solo style. And then have him come back at the end. Hey, you did it, my boy. You saved, or you know something. Or if he died, just leave him dead. But doing both, yeah, I that was yeah. I had kind of the same reaction. Like, oh, that was a bait and switch, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if even if you just said when he gets shot, get him to the infirmary, and right. that's the last we'd have seen of it. And then at the end, he's not dead. I just I did feel that resurrecting him was a misstep in what was otherwise a really entertaining and great film. I especially like the bit where they launched the attack on all the starfighters and they managed to get a number of the missiles, but they missed that crucial one or two. And the guy, when he stands up at the end, I don't know who that guy was, but his face when he realizes that, mm, yeah. yeah, we're going to die now, yeah. was actually a really good piece of acting. One thing that I caught in this, and I would love to try to find some confirmation on it, is, again, watching this again after so many years, it struck me that the base that they keep showing that's on the side of... It's on the side of, like, a like a mountain or a, or a cliffs, you know, cliff face or something looks an awful lot like the facilities on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith, and I'm wondering if that's purposeful or not. 
because I know that over time that this movie has been homaged and referenced in a lot of other sci-fi films that came later because this tends to be one of those fondly remembered science fiction films that other you know other sci-fi writers and stuff like to like make little acknowledgments to so but i don't know for sure but did, did you catch that do you know what i'm talking about i thought it did look similar to other things that we i didn't particularly catch the reference specifically to mustafa well you know in in, in revenge of the sith there's that facility on mustafar where where kenobi and uh, anakin end up having their final battle and it it has like those big veins that come out off the side and you know it's protected by the force field so this facility on rylos didn't have like those giant veins or anything but just the just the look of the complex as it was kind of stuck on the side of that cliff face looked mm. an awful lot like the one in revenge of the sith um you know minus those big whatever they're supposed to be like weather veins or whatever, you know, without those things on them. But I, I just, I, again, I just wondered if it was coincidence or, or whether that was a purposeful uh, callback to this film. I, I don't know for sure. Cause it reminded me of the duck blind from insurrection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it does. You're right. Cause it's the same essential idea, isn't it? It built into the side of the mountain so that the people can't see it. Right. I thought that was interesting. Did you notice as well? Um, the, the alien that comes after Alex when he returns back to Earth was Mark Alamo. I didn't catch it until I was looking at the uh, the credits for the movie, uh, and then I felt bad that I didn't catch it, because he was uh, Gul Dukat, right? Yeah, he was Gul Dukat, and he's been in lots of other Star Trek stuff as well. I think he right. was a Romulan in a couple of episodes. That's but you, right, you do only yeah. see his face very... Yeah, he's the Romulan in the Neutral Zone episode of Next Generation. That's right, yeah. You, you do only see his real face very briefly. It's in shadow, so you're forgiven for not spotting him. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't catch that at all. Well, supposedly Will Wheaton is in this uh, as well, and I didn't catch that either. So I wonder if that was just, uh, you know, if maybe you don't see him real clearly or, or something like that. But here's the one that completely blew me away when I did my homework on this because I'd always meant to look this up, and then you know I, I just forgot. But every time I ever watched this movie. When I was a kid, the the one figure that always used to just nag me was Granny, um, Maggie's grandmother. Oh, yeah, I know what you're going to say. Go on. Every time I saw her, I'm like, I have seen this woman in something. And I'd start running grandmothers through my head. And I'm thinking maybe she was on like the Waltons or something. It just nagged the hell out of me. Where have I seen this woman before? And I finally had to track it down to figure out who she was. And when I realized, you know, when I saw who it was that she was reminding me of, it completely blew me away. Like, okay, I'm glad I looked this up because I'd spend, I would have spent the rest of my life being nagged by this and not figuring it out. She was the keeper in the cage, the very first Star Trek episode. She was the head asshat and i never ever would have put that together because i was thinking of a female role and the keeper is i always thought the keeper was a guy because he always reminded me of um of the boss on i dream a genie you know genie's master's boss what was his name major healy or whatever that's who i always thought played that role and it turned out that no it was actually a woman it was this woman that played granny so i'm 
I'm glad to finally have that mystery resolved. But when I saw that, it just it, it just amused me no end. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe that that's who that turned out to be. I yeah, because well, funny. she had a she has a voice dubbed by a man in the cage, doesn't she? Right, right. To give it to slightly unnerving alien thing that you're looking at it going, is it a woman? Because it sounds like a man. Right. <laughs> the other main actor that we've not mentioned in this so far is Dan O'Herrela, the old man from RoboCop. Yep. Yeah, is I wondered, Greg. I wondered which of us would, would mention the RoboCop thing first. Yes. <laughs> He's absolutely fantastic in this. He it is. seems to me that Lewis Gossett Jr. got an awful lot of, um, of plaudits for being whatever that alien race was in Enemy Mine. And he deserved it. He did a brilliant mm-hmm. job. But O'Herrell is just as good in this. I don't know that I've ever seen Enemy Mine all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I'm not a fan of of Lewis Gossett Jr., which is probably why I never really that one never really uh, stuck with me. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Dan O'Herrell is is just fantastic as Greg in this. He he's one of the things that really sells the role uh, in a lot of ways because you know now that I think about it. You know, I was, I was saying before how Centauri is not Ben Kenobi, but Centauri is kind of like putting Han Solo in the Ben Kenobi place, if you know what I mean. So kind of combined mm. Ben Kenobi and Han Solo. So in a, in a weird kind of way, Grig is kind of like taking like, say, I don't know, like say Chewbacca and combining him a little bit with Ben Kenobi, because he serves a little bit more of the mentor in some kind of ways, but he's also serving as, you know, the alien sidekick. But one of the things that I don't think this movie gets enough credit for, and you definitely get this with the part that Hurley's playing, is this movie has some fantastic makeup work that really, you know, in a lot of ways, the makeup work in this shames both Star Trek and some of the, like, say, like, Return of the Jedi that was only a year before this. Um, you know, I, I hate to, you know, to quote uh, Kevin Smith, but in a lot of ways, I mean, he's right that what is Return of the Jedi has? It has a lot of Muppets. But in this, you've got some practical effects that look damn good. I mean, Grig is a great-looking character. I mean, the makeup work is so far ahead of its time, we really wouldn't see that level of uh, of makeup work for, like, a reptilian alien again until something like, say, DS9. And mm. I like the big, like, squid dude that, uh, that Alex almost gets in a fight with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry I stood on your whatever that was. I mean, that guy looks fantastic. He looks really good, and even the kind of Google-eyed alien that, that talks to Alex looks pretty good, too. And... You know, we didn't really get that that level of of costuming and and makeup even in some of the like later Star Trek films because we've got a uh, you know just a couple years down the road you've got Star Trek four, and you know the the council is sprinkled with different aliens and all none of them I think look as good as the aliens in this movie so you know, they they really did a great job with the with the makeup effects and everything and this film did not have a big budget at all so it's actually pretty amazing that they afforded. Not even, you know, not only really good practical effects with makeup, but also, you know, these supercomputers that they could use to create all the ship battles and everything. That's pretty amazing on a $15 million budget in 1984. Yeah, and the makeup effects of uh, of the bad guy as well. The the one who keeps having that red thing come across his eye. Yes, yeah. 
he's he's got a fantastic look. It's kind of like it's a little bit lizardy, but it's also a little bit like um, the guys in Insurrection who looks like they've had the faces pulled back. Right, right. <laughs> There's a little bit of that to it, and he the makeup effect on him is fantastic because he's still doing a great acting job of acting through that makeup. But you you never see the seams in it. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you can you get a point around the mouth, especially when they're talking, you can see the cracks. Mm-hmm. And his makeup job was absolutely fantastic. I wanted more of him instead of the bald guy. Yeah, yeah, that guy's just annoying. Yeah, and you get the, the impression that they're just using him anyway right, to get what yeah. they want. And there were some bits of it that I didn't remember being as bloody as they are. Like when they drain, essentially, they suck that guy's brain out of his head. <laughs> right. In the scene where Alex is like, yeah, yeah, I don't want anything to do with this. You're okay. That was a bit more gruesome than I remembered it. Now, whether or not it was cut when it was on TV, I don't know. Because this is the kind of thing that it always heard on the afternoons. Right. So it never got an evening show in. But it, it, I didn't remember it being, I mean, I'm not going to, it's not a certificate. It's not a 15 or a, or anything or an NC-17 or anything. But it was a bit more bloody than I remembered it being as a kid's film. Well, the guy sits there screaming through the entire thing, too. So, you know, yeah, it, it occurs so to he's me alive. That, yeah. It occurs to me that this was the same year that, uh, that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom stirred up so much stuff with, uh, with the heart rip-out scene and all that. I wonder if possibly the... Uh, the brain melting scene in this one could have maybe, maybe contributed to that as well. I don't know. Yeah, maybe if it had been more successful, it would have uh, attracted some more attention, exactly like the Indiana Jones thing did. That's the funny thing about this is looking at the numbers here. You know, it was uh, made on a budget of fifteen million and returned uh, twenty-eight point seven. So yeah, it didn't even make back twice its money. So I guess. You know, how, you know, in Hollywood speak, that it was not a successful film. The funny thing is, I, you know, I, I'm not sure why. I think it, I suspect it was just kind of lost in the shuffle. It, you know, it was just, it, it was eclipsed by other films that did, you know, just did better that particular year. But it has a very high rating, and I've never personally met anybody that saw it back in the day that has anything bad to say about it. I mean, everybody that I know that remembers it from the 80s remembers it very fondly. So I think this is another one of those examples of something where where history was was much kinder to it than it, you know, than an initial, you know, than the initial box office figures uh you know, stood out for it. Yeah, well I I remember everyone at school saw this. I mean, they all saw it on video. I don't right. recall any Everyone talking about seeing it at the cinema, but everybody saw it and everyone thought it was really, really good. And it was quite surprising to me that it didn't do as well at the box office as I thought it should have done or as I remembered that it did. But if you just look, I mean, the list of movies I put at the beginning of the show. And if you go on um, Wikipedia and look at the other stuff that was released in 1984, I think you're right. I think it just got lost in the shuffle because there is an awful lot of great movies from 1984. Let's see, this came out in July of 84, so I, I don't have a list of uh, of 84 movies pulled up in, here in front of me, but what else would have been out right at, you know, w- literally in theaters right when this movie was playing in 84? Well, if it was a big summer movie, it will have been competing with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There you go. 
and Ghostbusters and Gremlins. Lance guessed in an interview said it, they got hammered by Purple Rain. Now, I couldn't give a rat's ass about Prince or Purple Rain, but in 1984, he was huge. Right. So it's it's probably more a case of they went up against Purple Rain and, and got hammered, unfortunately, because this is, you know, this is probably a much better film than Purple Rain is. One of the things I do like at the end, the special effects scene with the Death Blossom, the, the gunship is a brilliant ship. I really love that. And you've got to wonder why there was no merchandising for it either. Maybe they could have clawed some of the budget back via merchandise. But I don't remember there ever being any toys for this. Yeah, not that I recall. I don't really remember anything for this as far as merch, because I don't even think there was like a bubblegum card set. Or the only thing I can remember was the comic, which I need to go back and look at it again, because I probably haven't looked at the comic in 30 years. But I remember the comic not being very good. But uh, again, according to the article here, the adaptation, uh, the art on it is by Brett Blevins. I tend to like Brett Blevins, so I, I guess I need to go back and look at it again. But all I, all I know is what I remember from when I was a kid, which was it was not very good. See, I remember, I remember really liking the adaptation, because it's the adaptation that got me into, going, into seeing the film. Because Marvel used to do that all the time. They had adaptations for everything oh, yeah. in the early 80s, didn't they? Yeah. They adapted every, even not entirely child-friendly films. <laughs> they would do movie adaptations for. I oh, mean, yeah. Conan's not a PG, but that got serialized in, in Marvel UK stuff. Oh, yeah. So I remember, but Alan Dean Foster also did a novel for it. And I remember reading, I don't remember anything about it. Yeah, I was noticing But that I remember too. that he did it. Yeah, if I ever chance across that, I'm going to pick it up, because I, I rather like uh, Alan Dean Foster. I'd be very curious to, to read his adaptation and, and see, you know, the the great thing about novelizations and comic books, you know, comic book adaptations from this time period, is that usually they would throw in more stuff than was actually in the movies. You know, it's what I've come to call DVD extras, you know, <laughs> way before there were DVDs. But that's essentially that was the appeal of those things back then was that you got a you usually would get a little bit more than what was actually on the screen in the finished you know product of the film either more or sometimes different sometimes they would have variations on the way that the movie played out in particular scenes or what so yeah I'd be curious to go back and and take a look at that yeah see movie novelizations is something I've considered doing a show about because. There were so many of them that were so much better than the film they were novelizing. Like, Star Trek III, The Wrath of Khan's got, like, a hundred and odd pages before the film right. even starts of Vonda McIntyre wrapping up all the loose ends from Star Trek II. Uh, you ever decide to do that? Please let me know. I would be most interested because, yeah, I was, uh, I was an avid collector and reader of movie adaptations uh, back then. Mm. Well, that's where I discovered the Back to the Future. There's an entire scene of Back to the Future deleted where he's in detention, and it was filmed. It's in the novel. Hmm. That's it's never been restored. It's never been shown. But um, uh, Bob Gaylor said it was filmed, and they've never released it as a deleted scene. I don't know why, but it is in the novelization. You know, when he gets detention from Mr. Strickland at the beginning of the film, that's right. a scene in the movie of him getting out of detention, and oh. that's in the novel. And Gremlins has a ton of stuff in the novel that isn't in the film. Because the novel to Gremlins is really thick by uh, George Gype, I think. And it, that I remember really enjoying the novel to Gremlins. Right. But I, I don't have the novel to The Last Starfighter anymore. I know I used to have, 
but I don't know, that must have got lost at some point. So I don't actually remember much about it, otherwise I would have dug it out and gone through it. Because I'd be very interested to see how Alan Dean Foster fleshed this out. Right. Because an awful lot of this was apparently added, all the stuff with the beta unit was added later after test audiences responded well to those scenes being comedy. And what had happened, Lance Guest had shaved his hair, so he had to wear a wig in those scenes. So it would be interesting to see if those were in the novel. Huh. That's funny. That that the beta unit's a pretty good practical effect too. The the one scene where they pull back the covers and and you see it still morphing into to looking like Alex. That that was a pretty good model effect in that one. I thought. See, I really like the touch of that as well. Is that it's not instant. That he's had to. He's touched right. him and right. he's he's adopting his his form, but it takes some time for it to settle down. I thought that was a really interesting idea, that it takes a certain amount of time for it to happen. You know, something we didn't touch on in this yet was uh, the score by uh, Greg, and I'm never sure how to pronounce his name, if it's Safin or or Safin or Safan or whatever, but I love the theme to this movie. Um, The overall score is a little hit and miss because there's some parts of it where it gets a little bit of that cheesy 80s computery kind of sound like like it sounds very kind of video gameish in certain parts which i i guess is fitting in a, in a way but the opening theme the main theme of the movie i i love it's just it's a fantastic um movie theme and uh, uh i'm i'm glad that uh, apparently somebody at, uh, at disney thinks the same thing because if you ever go on uh the attraction soren at epcot there's a, a loop that plays when you're in the queue waiting to get on the attraction of movies about flight that, you know, that involve, you know, going into, you know, to flying or into space or something like that. A whole bunch of them like, you know, Apollo 13 and Hook and, um, you know, just uh, uh, the right stuff, a, a whole slew of movies. And they play the last Starfighter theme in there as well, which I, I, I always... I'm, I always like when I'm there and I'm, I'm waiting in the queue and I hear that one come up, I always like to actually watch the faces of people that are in the queue line because you see so many guys right around <laughs> our age that'll be listening going, and you can tell what they're thinking. They're going, man, what is that? I know that. What is that from? And they can't quite place it. I love that. I love that. It just gives me no end. Well, I was going to mention the score because I can't have you on and not talk about the music. <laughs> but yeah, the, the opening theme to this is fantastic. The Most of it, I agree with you, it does kind of, they kind of subscribe to that. We've got a great theme. So throughout the film, we'll just replay the theme and then we'll slow it down for tender bits and then we'll right. speed it up for the action scenes. But when you've got such a brilliant theme as this has, fair play to him. I, I do. I like the score to this, and I will put it on occasionally. But listening to it as a whole, it does get a little bit samey. Yeah. Because, it, like I say, he's come up with a brilliant theme, and then he just kind of plays around with that theme for the majority <laughs> of the score. My fa- one of my favourite scenes is, is the end of the film where Grig comes down and <laughs> says hello to Granny. Yeah. And uh, they call him a monster. And the way he delivers the line, monster. <laughs> I love that line delivery. Absolutely brilliant. He's fantastic in this movie. He He's he's so, so good. And it, it's just, it's so amusing to see him in this role and then to watch him in RoboCop. Because there's, <laughs> it's the same actor 
and so very different a role. And I suspect that one of the reasons why, uh, amongst many, that RoboCop 2 was such a complete miss with me personally was that it turned the old man into a, a villain in that movie. And I never saw him that way in the first RoboCop. And I think a lot of that was because he was Grig. And Grig is just such a lovable character that even though he's yeah. not Grig in RoboCop, obviously, I still wanted to love him. You know, I, I still was like, oh, you know, he's, he's still that, that same lovable character and everything. And so I never saw him as the bad guy. So when they made that turn, I just I, I couldn't I couldn't make that turn with them, you know. No, he's brilliant in it, and especially he doesn't really get to interact with many people apart from Alex until the ending. But I think if you watch all the background people, there, they're all playing it brilliantly. Because mm-hmm. the guy who plays Blake, who was in V, who's after um, Maggie, he's just completely dismissive of this happening in front of his eyes. Right. Because he won't accept that Alex was has become something. And all the people in the background, there's, there's, a, there's a black guy behind his mum who throughout the entire scene, his face, he's just got this huge grin on his face throughout the whole scene. Like, I cannot believe I'm witnessing aliens landing on Earth. And all of the extras in that scene are fantastic, from the old ladies to the kids. Lewis is brilliant. Lewis is just completely unfazed by the fact that this lizard alien's just landed in front of him. (laughs) And all of them are really playing it for real. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that's why this works, despite the fact there are scenes in it you can go, that's the rebel briefing from Star Wars, and that's the mentor dies scene that completes the hero's journey. There's so much heart to it, and all of the actors are just playing it for the for their lives. They're all just going for it, even the background guys. And that's why it worked. The, the special effects look a little bit dated now, even though most of my actors just sell it completely from mm-hmm. the get-go. And there's just so much feeling and soul and heart to it that I think I think you're a real curmudgeon to not like the film. Right. Absolutely. It is it, it's it works on the same level that the original Star Wars works, which is it, it's a feel good movie because at the end of it, much like Star Wars, you wanna clap, you wanna cheer along with the heroes that you know, good on you, Alex, you know, you you made good kind of thing and I, and I like that. A couple of things that, uh, again, stood out to me on this viewing is I had forgotten that uh, Alex does reference... Uh, he, there's a point when, when he's talking to Grig, I think it's when they're hiding in the, in the asteroid, and he, he clearly says, my folks, even though all we've ever seen is his mother. And then he ends up showing Grig uh, a family portrait, mm. and his dad is clearly in the picture. But his dad, beyond that point, is never referred to, and we never see him. So I'm wondering what the story is there with his dad. Is dad dead? Is he recently dead? Are they divorced? You know, what's going on there? Are they are they living in the trailer park, and his mom's working so much because they are recently divorced or something? You know, you, you never get that story. But there's a story there, I feel. I, I wonder if maybe the novelization you know, ex- expounded on that at all. I don't know. Uh, my interpretation of it was his dad had passed away. That was what I thought was going on. Because the way that he refers to it, he does seem to be playing it as if his dad's recently died. 
Right. I, I think that's the way he's playing it. I wonder if there was more to it in an original cut or, or in the novel or whatever. The other thing that occurred to me, and, you know, I, I'd heard the idea uh, just recently. It's funny because I never heard it, to, to my recollection, I don't remember ever hearing this you know, in the in the eighties or nineties, you know, when the when the movie was out and the movie was still relevant and all that, it's really a, a fairly modern thing that I've heard this, but this idea of sequels. And when I first heard that idea, you know, again very recently, I kind of scoffed at it, like, oh, really? You know, the the standard old Hollywood trope of, you know, let's dig something back out of the eighties and and do a remake or do a sequel or what. And I, while I I'm really resistant to that just because it's become such a cliche. Watching this again, it did strike me that the movie ends in such a way that it is kind of a shame that there there never were sequels because, I mean, it doesn't telegraph sequel. I mean, it doesn't, you know, say, you know, to be continued on the end or anything like that, but they did end it in such a way that it was open-ended. They could have gone on to tell further stories because Zur gets away um, and, you know, the the fleet needs to be rebuilt. I mean, Alex is literally the last one and, you know, he's their, their greatest one. So, I mean, they, they kind of put him in that position where, you know, much like Luke Skywalker, where he needs to rebuild, you know, he needs to train the next generation kind of thing. And, you know, he and Maggie go off to, to Rylos at the end. So it does set up great potential for continuing stories that, unfortunately, we never got. And that was one of the things I was most curious about when I was doing my research on this and, and just looking to see what else was out there in the world of Last Starfighter. And I was amazed to find that uh, there's nothing. There was never a, a, a novel or a comic book or anything that carried the story forward. So as as much of a cult favorite that this is for so many science fiction fans from the eighties, this is all there ever was, was just the movie. And that's, that's really kind of weird. Yeah. I found an interview with, um, there was an IO nine article about the behind the scenes on making the effects more than anything. But they said that Seth Rogen and Steven Spielberg had both looked into either a remake and or a sequel. And the rights are held with the writer, Jonathan Betuel, and he's just resisted any overtures to remaking it particularly or even doing a sequel to it. So on the one hand, I kind of I've got to to doff my hat to him for not wanting to just let the rights go to any old fool. But on the other, yeah, it really, it does leave it open for some kind of sequel. In this era of IDW doing season six of Six Million Dollar Man and Dark Horse doing season eight of Buffy, you would have thought somebody somewhere would have have brought up the idea of doing a sequel to this. But apparently not. Yeah, at the very least, comic books. I, you know, again, I, I can respect, you know, if this guy really doesn't want films, because, yeah, I mean, let's face it, Hollywood's not had the best track record lately when it comes to, for definitely with remakes, but even a lot of the sequels, you know, when when you've waited, you know, decades and all of a sudden you get that long-awaited sequel, man, yeah, they're not having the greatest of luck with that either. So I, I can see that, but. What surprises me is that, uh, again, for one, there were never sequels at the time when the movie was still 
I was going to say when the movie was still relevant, but, you know, as relevant as it ever was for a movie that just wasn't that big of a hit. But, you know, sequels at the time, still in the 80s, but also now, you know, with the 80s being so heavily mined in recent years as it it has been, uh, especially comic book-wise, I mean, a lot of stuff from the 80s is now getting comic book sequels and continuations. Uh, I, I just saw where... Uh, again, I think it was IDW is doing a new series based on the Fly films. You know the uh, the David Cronenberg, Jeff Goldblum movie, and it's okay sequel. There's there's a new comic coming out based on that. So I mean they they are definitely really mining the '80s for properties that they can tell continuing stories of. This one seems primed for that. It does seem. I mean, even if they approach him and said, "Look, you can write it." Oh yeah. And it, it it just seems like I don't know I don't know how the writers ended up with the rights to it. One would have thought that the that Universal would hold the rights to this. Yeah, that's very strange. Mm. I mean, I suppose I've got to doff my hat to his integrity. I suppose that he's he's uh, he's refused overtures even from Steven Spielberg to either do a sequel or a, a remake. That that just seems odd, though. For you know, again, for a movie that sadly, as much as we love it, didn't do that well commercially then either this guy's integrity is is more important than money or he doesn't need the money one of the two mm. which must be nice you know <laughs> to, to not need it yeah. yeah okay well do we have any final thoughts no not that i i think we pretty much covered everything uh you know you mentioned the car before um centauri's car always reminded me of uh auto man's car oh yeah <laughs> The one that could do 90-degree turns. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It did remind yeah. me a lot of that. But, uh, no, that, I think that's about all I've got for this one. Um, I would highly encourage anybody that has never seen it, check it out. And uh, if you do, let us know what you think. Either good or bad, I'm curious, one way or the other. You know, what did you think, uh, you know, of, of the film one way or the other? And, <clears throat> you know, if you're like me and you haven't seen the film in, uh, in many, many moons, then... Uh, Dig it back out and rewatch it because, you know, in an age of so much dark science fiction, I like that there there's still movies out there like this one that, you know, it has its dark elements and everything. And while on the surface of it may seem terribly derivative, but at the end of the day, it, I feel great after watching this. It's just, it's a fun, feel good, it's a lighthearted, feel good movie. And uh, we just don't have enough of them. Nope, I I completely agree. I think uh, I was delighted to rewatch it and delighted to find that it still entertained me as much as it ever did. And yeah, I think if they did a remake, he'd be a slacker loser. He wouldn't be this nice, likable kid that he is in this movie. And I do think that, like you say, there are a few moments that are a bit more grisly than I remembered from being a child. But it did leave you at the end. It, It left you fist pumping. It left you going, oh, yeah go for it well done alex so yeah check it out and if you want to drop us a line and let me know what you thought hey kids comics at virginmedia.com you can email us to tell us what you thought of it thank you very much mr gardner for joining me for the show it is always a pleasure and we don't get to do it anywhere near enough as i would like to because i always thoroughly enjoy talking to you and i thoroughly enjoy listening to you (laughs) <laughs> so why don't you tell the lovely listenership, although if they're listening to this, they probably know who you are. Why don't you tell the lovely listenership where you can be found? Well, I 
do or participate in, in many, many podcasts, all of which can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Uh, just a, a quick rundown. You've got uh, Back to the Bins that uh, I am on as often as I can possibly manage, which is just a great discussion of old comic books. Um, I do a regular Star Wars show, a regular Star Trek show, a regular uh, comic book show in addition to Back to the Bins. Uh, I now do a, uh, a Disney show called Earning My Ears, which is a, uh, a regular discussion of all things uh, Disney, all things Walt Disney World related. It's very much a Walt Disney World centric podcast. And of course, Tales of the Justice Society of America with my good friend Michael Bailey. And we are deep into Crisis on Infinite Earths at the moment. So that's, that's just a little taste of what I'm putting out in the world of podcasts. Uh, Earning My Ears is brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. I, I work hard I, on that. I really, I really very much enjoy earning him. I keep meaning to email you, but you don't have the email on the show links. That's true. Yeah, we need to, we need to get on that. You that need has to been fix that. Out to us quite often that that show doesn't have its own email address yet. Right, good. So it's not just me that's gone to send you an email <laughs> saying how much I thoroughly enjoyed the Christmas one, and there was no email up, and then that email just never got sent. Sadly. Anyway. It's no worries at all. It's a great show. And you know I'm, you know how much I love talking to you and uh, how much I enjoy listening to you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Scott. It was very much appreciated. I very much enjoyed it. And thank you, lovely people, for listening. I'll be back whenever. You know this one's random and it can happen at any time. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.